Let's pray. And so, Father, with that festive fanfare as a send-off, we are launched on a journey now into a theme that could hardly be more sobering and somber than hell. Oh God, we have to get this straight. So may the mighty Spirit of the Almighty teach us through Holy Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sue Rapet, who is the receptionist and facilities coordinator here at Pioneer, put me in touch with a purportedly actual recording of people in hell. I went to the website, read the report of a group of geologists in Siberia who drilled 14.4 kilometers into the crust of the earth. And to their shock, suddenly heard, emanating from the fiery core of this planet, human screams. A recording was made of those screams. Someone sent radio host Art Bell a copy of that recording, and he played it on his radio show nationally. It ended up on YouTube. I want you to listen to it right now. I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. Just to that, that goes on for 40 seconds. Snopes.com, the urban legend online buster, researched the story and understandably has declared it to be false. But no matter your personal convictions about hell, you must admit those are dreadful sounds. Is there a place called hell? And is it or will it be filled with sounds such as we just heard? In 1741, Jonathan Edwards, pastoring in Northampton, Massachusetts, during the Great Awakening, preached his most famous sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Through a very graphic depiction of hell, he is pleading with his listeners to flee from sin to the Savior. Here's an excerpt from that sermon. I'll put it on the screen for you. 
The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is a pure eyes and to bear to have you in His sight. You are ten thousand times more abominable in His eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. How dreadful is the state of those that are daily and hourly in the danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. End quote. It's no wonder that in the 19th century, somebody published a children's book capturing this popular concept of hell for those tiny, wide-eyed readers. These words appeared in that book. Little child, if you go to hell, there will be a devil at your side to strike you. He will go on striking you every minute forever and ever without ever stopping. How then will your body be after the devil has been striking it every moment for a hundred million years without stopping? End quote. It is no secret that the book I hold here in my hands teaches about hell. Nor is it a secret that Christian preachers and theologians over the centuries have interpreted the Bible's teaching of hell to mean that God will burn sinners forever and ever in the fires of hell. Nor is it surprising, nor should it be a secret to discover that the teaching of everlasting hell has arguably turned more thinking men and women away from Christianity than any other single teaching. Robert Ingersoll, the celebrated agnostic of the 19th century, grew up hearing his preacher dad. His father was a pastor. He grew up hearing him teach about how God would burn little tiny babies forever in hell. That youthful mind absolutely revolted against the injustice of the thought. Little Bobby cried out, I hate him, and spent the rest of his life disproving the God of Christianity. Bertrand Russell, famed atheist of the 20th century, in his book, The Moral Problem, wrote, I do not myself feel that any person profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. And then in the 21st century, I have their books. Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, the celebrated atheist of today. Both of them in their books confront the caricature of a God burning sinners forever in the fires of hell. And both reject the notion of such a God. In fact, reject any God at all. Who would want your monster God to be his or her God anyway? So what do we do with this teaching that has turned so many away from God? Is it true? Does the Bible teach that God burns babies and sinners in an everlasting hellfire forever and ever? Amen. Or is there another way to understand the truth about hell? Open your Bible with me, please, to the words of Jesus in the Gospel of St. Luke. Luke chapter 12. These are red-letter words. By the way, if you didn't bring a Bible, you need to see this for yourself. Luke chapter 12. Grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It will be page 701 in the Pew Bible. Same translation that I'll be reading out of this morning, the New King James Version. 
Luke chapter 12, verse 4. Read along with me. Whatever translation you have. If you have a red-letter Bible, these words better be in red or you take that Bible back. All right. Luke chapter 12, verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, philoi. This speaks of, like, you know, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. The Greek word is philoi. It means one, those I feel especially close to. He's, this is not a public teaching now. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. Verse 5. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Wow. Edward Fudge, in his book, The Fire That Consumes, observes that, and I'll put the words on the screen, perhaps the greatest reason for talking about hell is also the simplest and most obvious. Jesus, our Savior, spoke of it more than once and in the most serious tones. Whenever he speaks... We will do well to listen, end quote. Hey, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could come across a line in the Gospels where Jesus is speaking red letters and he says, You have heard of old that it was said, there is a hell, but I say to you, there is no hell. Hallelujah. You will not find those words in any of the Gospels. Somber indeed. Instead, is his warning. Look at verse 5. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. We open this series with this single red-lettered line for two critical reasons. These reasons are so vital. I wish you'd scribble them down right now. Would you pull out the uh, worship study guide that's in your, in your bulletin today? Pull out the study guide. All right, friendly ushers, you know the drill. Hold them up. There are people who got in here but didn't get a worship bulletin. You're going to want this study guide. You are going to brood over what we have shared today. Make sure you get it, please. Hold your hand up all the way into the balcony. And those of you who are watching on television, we are delighted to have you. I want you to have the same study guide, so go to our website. Let me put it on the screen for you. www. PM, we're the Pioneer Memorial, pmchurch.tv. Now, you're looking for a brand new miniseries. We just finished The Truth About Death, three parts. Now we're moving into The Truth About Hell, three parts. You're looking for Truth About Hell. Today's teaching is entitled MonsterGod.com. All right, you're looking for today's teaching. And then you'll see the word study guide. You click on there, you'll have the same study guide. By the way, don't you dare miss next week the smoke of their torment. And the final piece, my journey to purgatory and back. We'll share that a little threesome for this miniseries. Two critical reasons. There it is in the study guide, right at the top there. Fill it in, please. Two critical reasons. We must confront the teaching of hell. Write it down. One, number one, whatever hell is, it is fearsome. You have the words of Jesus as corroboration. Number one, whatever hell is, it is fearsome. And number two, whatever hell is, it is final. Fearsome and final. I share these two reasons simply because some of you who happen to share my understanding of hell have been lulled into a lackadaisical, ho-hum, big-deal attitude about hell. I mean, come on, who cares? 
But these words of Jesus grab such careless thinking by the scruff of the neck and cry out, You'd better think again, my friend, about hell. Because whatever it is, it is fearsome and it is final. It will not be an anesthetized picnic where you simply hit a switch and quietly check out. Just like suicide. I'm out of here. Nope. Jesus cries out, no, 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 no. You had better fear the God who can not only extinguish your life in this life, but, ex- but can extinguish your life forever and ever. Amen. Whatever hell is, it will be fearsome and it will be final. And if hell should happen to you and me, we will with all our hearts be wishing that it was not about to happen. To us. Because then, there will be no turning back. Not then. Jesus is clear. It will be final and forever. It will be fearful and fearsome. Nobody will long. Oh, I just wish, I just wish I could go to hell. Nobody will long for it. Nobody. I've never in my <laughs> little reality check here. I have never in my life preached three sermons in a row on hell. Please. I mean, I always figured one little sermon dealing with the manner of hell will surely take care of the biblical teaching. But as I I have been reading deeply into this subject, the Spirit of God has impressed me that there is a sobering and solemn death to the subject that has elicited what we just read, the red letters of Jesus. Something's there that we may have hurried past in the past. Let me read it again with you. Verse 4 of Luke 12, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But, verse 5, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear Him who after He has killed you, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, in case you didn't hear me the first time, fear Him. Jot it down, will you? Do not fear those who can extinguish your life in this life. But fear Him who can extinguish your life for the life to come. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Not here, ladies and gentlemen. Not here. Not when hell is on His mind. As it turns out, is often the case in the Gospels. According to Jesus, please note these descriptors that he declares are of hell itself. Okay, you got your study guide right there. You're going to have to keep your pen moving. We'll do it off the screen, however. Let's put the first verse up. That'll be in Matthew chapter 8. These are all red letters. Jesus speaking. Matthew 8, verse 11. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there, there, there are some repeat references and you have them there in your study guide. But would you jot those three words down? We're hunting for the descriptors of hell that Christ teaches. So jot down those three. Darkness. Then you're going to jot down weeping and gnashing. All right? Now, he has more to say about hell. That isn't it. Let's put another one up. Let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 41. Jesus, red letters again. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. 
Last time it was darkness. This time it's fire. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the New King James there actually translates the identical Greek word as wailing. For what reason? We do not know. That's the thing about modern translations. They just, on a whim, it should be the same word of weeping. So you have the same two descriptors, weeping and gnashing, but this one adds fire. So what do we have now? We have darkness, and we have weeping and gnashing, and we have fire. But he's not true. He'll talk about hell again. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Red letters as well. The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and will cut him in two. Now, it doesn't say the instrument for that cutting, but with your permission, I would like to suggest it's probably a sword. So we put in brackets with a sword. He will cut him in two with a sword and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And here it comes again. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Would you write that down, please? Sword, weeping, gnashing. What else do we have? We have darkness, weeping and gnashing. We have fire, weeping and gnashing. There they are. According to Jesus, the final destruction of hell will come by fire, darkness, and sword, and those who experience it will erupt in weeping and gnashing of teeth. So which one of these metaphors is right? Will hell be fire? Will hell be darkness? Will hell be the sword? Or could it be that intentionally, in intentionally mixing his metaphors for hell, darkness, fire, and sword, Jesus is making a point? What if it could be shown that Jesus Himself personally experienced all five of these descriptors of hell? Come with me to that awful Friday we now call good. Go back to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew will take Matthew's crucifixion account. Matthew chapter 27. So just go back a few pages. We were in Luke, but now we go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. Let's pick it up in verse 33. What page number is that? That's page 671. Got a pew Bible? Follow along. Let's go to the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verse 33. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, verse 34, they gave him, Jesus, sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 36. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. I like that. They kept watch over him there. Let's you and I do the same for a few moments. Now, in the next verses that uh, follow, time will pass. Only what's not in those next verses is Luke's account of what happens during those next verses, and that would be the thief turning to Jesus. And there's that conversation with the thief. Nor is John's account of the crucifixion there, because John will describe Jesus in his agony, looking down upon his beloved mother, and as a legacy giving her to young John boy. So all of that transpires. Now we're going to pick it up a bit later that Friday, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour. Some of you who have very new translations... It reads, from noon. That's correct. Now, from the sixth hour, that would be noon, until the ninth hour, that would be three in the afternoon. There was what, ladies and gentlemen? What's the word in all our translations? There was what? There was darkness. Have you heard the word darkness before? Today? Yes, you have. There was darkness over all the land. Turns out, darkness 
is a symbol of judgment in the Old Testament. Would you jot that down, please, in your study guide? Darkness. We're going to Calvary. We're looking for the five descriptors. Lo and behold, we bump into the first one. There's darkness. What is darkness? It is a symbol of judgment. There are numerous Old Testament evidences for this, but let's just put one up. Let's put Isaiah chapter 13 on the screen. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Now, Old Testament scholars are very clear. Whenever you read in the Old Testament, day of the Lord, that's speaking about end time judgment. That's hell. That's the end. Everything wrapped up together. That's the big, that's the big one. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger. What happens in this day? To lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. Keep reading. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. Uh Uh-oh, something's getting dark here. Next, the sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. God speaking, I will halt the arrogance of the proud and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Case established, darkness is a sign of judgment. Darkness is an aspect of hell, the final judgment. All right, let's go back. Let's go back to uh, Matthew 27. Let's read verse 45 again. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with it in the Greek, megalephone. This is a megaphone. This isn't, this isn't a whimper. This is a scream. Jesus cried out saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jot it down, will you? There is weeping. There is weeping at Calvary. Say, how do you know, Dwight? Just watch this. Many scholars believe that Jesus was repeating the entire psalm by memory while he hung on the cross. Let's go to that uh, Messianic psalm, Psalm 22, verse 1. My God. God, that's where he got these words. My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry. I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. There was weeping at the cross. I cry. What else is at the cross? Go to the screen again. Let's, let's, let's insert another psalm that reflects... The cry of Calvary. Psalm 35, Psalm 35, 16. With ungodly mockers at feasts, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Lord, how long will you look on? The very cry of Calvary. How long will you look on? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the lions. Would you jot it down, please? Calvary, gnashing. You see, the word gnashing describes not only the experience of the victim, it describes the experience of those who can, can describe this, the experience of those who surround the victim. There's gnashing. Let's go back to that messianic psalm, Psalm 20. Verse 20. Psalm 22, rather. Verse 20. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Dog is a, is a symbol for the enemy. Deliver me, the cry of Calvary. Deliver me from the sword. Would you jot it down, please? There is a sword at Calvary. And we didn't even look up John 19, 34, where they took the sword, that spear, and just rammed it into his side. It was there. 
There they are, ladies and gentlemen, four of Jesus' own descriptors of hell that he himself experienced on that terrible Friday on the cross. You say, hey, wait a minute, Dwight, I thought there were five. Where's this? Hey, wait a minute, where's, where's number five? There's no fire on Calvary. I've read all four gospel accounts. There's no fire at all. My friend, you're absolutely right. You can't find a spark. But in the cryptic cry from that center cross, we find it echoed in advance. A sobbing question that inserts the fire. Watch this. Psalm 89. How long, Lord? My God, why have you cut me off? How long, Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like what? Fire. Write it down, would you please? My God, my God, why have you cut me off? Your wrath to me is like fire. Calvary, fire, a symbol of divine wrath. Fire, darkness, sword, weeping, gnashing. Do you know what that means? Jot it down. All five descriptors of hell that Jesus described, He Himself personally experienced upon the cross. Personally, all five, He experienced them. And what is this wrath of God's business? Huh? Oh, this is fascinating. You gotta, you, you, keep your pen right there. You have got to see this. Romans chapter 1. Let's go to the book of Romans that actually powerfully defines what the wrath of God means. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God... Okay, so we want to know, what is this wrath of God? What happens to a human being when the wrath of God takes place? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Alright, what does it mean when God reveals His wrath? Notice verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up. Speaking of sinners, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Let's just keep a little tally here of how many times a particular word in the Greek appears in Romans. Would you jot it down in your study guide? Romans 1, verse 18, verse 24. And by the way, 24, 26, and 28 all use this Greek word paradinomi, and it's translated, God gives sinners up. Write that down. God, what does it mean to have the wrath of God? God gives sinners up. That isn't hard to understand. He chooses not to force sinners to love Him and He gives them up to the consequences of their own choices. You can't be a mother, you can't be a father and not know the meaning of that human reality. I mean, you can say to your kids, look it, look it. Son, don't you ever drink this. You can say to your, your daughter, don't you ever do this. You can say, don't you ever smoke this. But every parent knows there will come a time when you can no longer make... Isn't this true? You can no longer make the choices for your children. They are of age and they will have to choose and they will have to... How does that old law of the universe go? Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. You can't stop the law. You can beg them. You can plead with them, but they have the freedom, do they not? To say, oh no, too bad, Dad. I'm going to do this anyway. And all a parent can do is with a broken heart, stand by and pray hard. I know. 
But what's startling in Romans is not only that, that it defines the wrath of God as God just God letting us reap the consequences of what we insist we've got to be able to do. What's startling in Romans is that God does the very same thing to Jesus on the cross. Watch this. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Jesus was... This is speaking of Calvary right here. Jesus was delivered up. There's that same Greek word, paradidomi. Jesus was delivered up because of our sins, our offenses, and He was raised because of our justification. Would you jot that down, please? Paradidomi in Romans 4, 25. God gave Jesus up. I mean, does that... Does that blow your mind or what? I mean, please. What God does to sinners, He did for Jesus on the cross. And by the way, in case you didn't get it, the author of Romans, Paul says, let me give you one more proof of that. Romans chapter 8. Let's put that one up. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up. There it is again, that Greek word paradidomi. But delivered Him up for us. How shall He not with Him, Christ, also freely give us all things. Romans 1, God gives, gives up sinners to their own choices. Romans 2, God gives up Jesus to the consequences of sin. Romans, uh, Romans 4, rather. Romans 8, God gave up. Jot it down. God gave up His Son. What God does to sinners, He did to Jesus on the cross. He let him reap the dark and wretched consequences of sin. I.e., the wrath of God, this divine letting go, God lets Christ experience the full force of that now that you're on, now that you're on your own severance between the two of them. Are you getting this? Do you understand? That when the wrath of God is displayed to sinners, it means I'll let you go. I'll let you reap the consequences of your choice. Do you understand that when the, wrath, the same wrath of God is displayed to Jesus, it's the same. I'll let you go. You have become sin. I let you go. And you reap the consequences. Marcus Bart, the New Testament scholar, graphically describes the severance that took place at Calvary. You see the words there in your study guide? Here at the cross, God stands against God. The Father against the Son. The benevolent, the benevolent promising God addressed in prayers against what God makes and allows in the world of facts and events. The earth trembles. The sun fades away. This is the horror of the judgment. God is silent. An eclipse of the living God. A victory of death over life. The end of all religion. All law and justice. All morality. It is this that comes in at 3 p.m. on Good Friday. A hell deeper and hotter than anything one might imagine has opened its maw, its jaws, devoured God's Son, and become all victorious. End quote. In a way we shall never fully understand. Christ drank the bitter, heart-crushing dregs of the cup of human sin. Drank it to the last drop. He entered into the very hell that He warned us, He waved us away from. You don't want to go here. He enters that very hell. But you say, listen, listen, Jesus didn't sin. I mean, how could He reap the consequences of His pure, 
and moral life. Ah, my friend, that is precisely the good news of the Gospel. Let's put it up on the screen. Everybody knows Isaiah 53. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Describing Calvary. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him and by His stripes we are healed. Now notice, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity. Write it down please. The iniquity of the entire human race. I give you up now. You take the consequences of bearing it all. Every sin in my life, every sin in your life, He bears it. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Is that only an Old Testament teaching? No, keep your pen moving. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, verse 21. For He, the Father, made Him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Would you jot that down? He made him to be sin for us. Ladies and gentlemen, the, myst- the mysterious truth of Calvary is that Jesus became our sin in order to bear our penalty. And as a consequence, he died the death that was ours. Not this momentary death that comes from human vicissitude. You know, I'm just weak. I've got, I've got that. I have the disease. I was hit by a car. Not that death, but the eternal death of human rebellion and sin. In fact, say it out loud with me. You know this one. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift is eternal life. And what is the wage? The very antithesis of eternal life can't be just a momentary death. It has to be an eternal death. The very opposite. The wages and the gift are contrasted. Revelation calls this eternal death The second death. You know why? Because it's the one death from which you cannot ever be awakened again. Second death. It's the death that hell consummates. Jesus taught hell. He said there will be five descriptors of hell. The darkness and sword of the judgment. The weeping and gnashing of anguish. And the fire of divine wrath. And on Calvary. All five descriptors Christ Himself endured. There is no clearer portrayal in all of Holy Scripture of hell than the cross. Whereon Jesus did not cry out, My God! My God! Why are you killing me? He didn't cry out, My God! Why are you burning me? The cry of Calvary is unmistakable. My God! God, my God, why have you cut me off? Why have you forsaken me? The dreadfully somber and sobering truth of hell is that it is the final and fearsome severance from the one being in the universe who is the life support of all creation. Our last text. Christ descended into hell into that awful darkness for us. Look at this. Our final text. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, 
Jot this down. That he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. All of us will taste our own first death. Whether it's premature or it comes with old age, we will all die. We will taste that death ourselves. But there is a second death that only one being in the universe thus far has tasted, and he did so, so that none of us would ever, ever, ever have to taste that death for ourselves. Listen to Desire of Ages. Moving depiction of the second death that Christ experienced at Calvary. You, got, you have it in your study guide. I'll put it on the screen. Friday afternoon, but now with the terrible weight of guilt he bears. He cannot see the Father's reconciling face. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to Him His coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell Him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Second death. We will never be together again. Christ felt, read on, Christ felt the anguish. This would be hell, wouldn't it? Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath. There it is again. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon Him as man's substitute that made the cup He drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. And you're saying, Dwight, there's no way. There's no way He died the second death. He came up on Sunday. I've told this story over and over again. Let me repeat it once more. A story about a little boy who was deathly ill. Doctors tried everything. They can't, they can't reverse impending death, it looks like. He has a rare genetic disorder. They need somebody who is the perfect genetic match. So they try, obviously they test the mother first, and then they, they, they test the father. Nobody in the family tests that match except the boy's younger sister. Of course, the doctors are delighted. And they gather with the family around the little girl, and they explain to her that she has, she has the perfect match that can save her brother's life. Would you be willing, honey, to give your blood for your brother? The little girl turns her pensive face away. She's deep in thought. Finally, the decision is made. She, she looks back into the downturned faces. She bounces those curls and she says, she would. So they hurry her into the laboratory and you've given blood. You know what it's like. And that little plastic bag begins to fill with the life-giving potion to save her older brother's life. When it was all over and she was leaving the laboratory, she looked up into her father's face. and She said, Daddy, when will I die now? And he kind of chuckled when all of a sudden it hit him like a bolt of lightning. 
His little girl had just gone through the procedure of giving her blood, believing that in the gift of that blood, she would die. Now, academicians, I want to ask you a question. Did that little girl die for her brother? Yes or no? Huh? Oh, you bet she did. She died for him. Right here. Died that death. I'll give my life for him. Did Jesus die the second death? Oh, yes, he did. Right here. And it broke his heart. He died the second death of hell for you and me. May I be candid with you? I cannot comprehend it. I cannot grasp how anyone would love me so much that he would be willing to go to hell for me. That he would be willing on that cross to be separated from the Father forever and ever so that I could live with the same Father forever and ever. I read about it. I sing about it. But I'm being honest with you. I, for the life of me, cannot comprehend that kind of love. Nobody has ever loved me that much before. There's only one thing I know what I know how to do. Only one. And that is I bow with my face to the ground and I worship Him who died for me. Oh, sacred head now wounded with grief and shame weighed down. Now scornfully surrounded with thorns Thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was Thine. Yet though despised and gory, I joy to call Thee mine. What language shall I borrow to thank Thee, dearest friend, for this Thy dying sorrow, Thy pity without end. O make me Thine forever. And should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee.